This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, this is Joe's sister, Nikki. I think I might be the only girl in the world who has a brother who spends his entire day in the basement pretending he has an internet radio show. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and while there may be 50 ways to leave your lover, there are only a couple of good ways to leave your financial advisor. What are they? Joe had a call with an anonymous listener about this very topic, and you'll get to hear all about it today. Plus, in our headline segment, the nation's biggest bond investor is laughing off the possibility of a stock market downturn in the near future, even though many in the media think technical signals say it's right around the corner. Who's right? Well, that's not all. We'll also throw out the Haven Lifeline, answer a letter from the mailbag, and, yep, you guessed it, save time for some of my mouth-watering trivia. And now, two guys who are back and ready to help you plug in and get the week started, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. And happy Monday. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And so happy to be back for another week of the Stacky Benjamin Show. And here, equally as excited, so excited, he's yawning while I talked to him. What's that all about? It's my friend, the other guy, or so we call him OG. So like my son said today, Dad, how come Mondays always look grayer than the weekends? <laughs> did he say that? Yeah, he really did. Did you say, welcome to the real world? Welcome to the next 70 years of disappointment every every Monday? No, I said it's because on the weekends you get up at 9 o'clock and during the weekdays you get up at 6.45. <laughs> it's just actually darker at 6.45. You just time. start explaining to him science. The, the movement of the sun across the sky, yeah. Well, you know what? You won't learn a lot about movement and the sun in the sky, but you will learn a lot more about your money with the stacker. We have struggled a little bit with 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 this concept because our delivery system is not something I'm naturally good at, but we have successfully set this up. We successfully fixed it for people that weren't getting the stacker. We do have 52 weeks of lessons over what's going to end up being now like over 55 weeks. So (laughs) stackybenjamins.com forward slash stacker. If you want to join us, plus we are headed around the country. We already started with the West coast. We've got more coming stackybenjamins.com forward slash stacker for more about what's going on here. And then uh, good money lessons, including something uh, called strategy and tactics 
which is looking at different areas of your financial picture and exactly what those bite-sized things are that you can work on today to make your money situation better. We got a great show today. I had the pleasure of talking to a woman recently. We're going to keep her anonymous. She and her husband didn't have the right fit as a financial advisor, and she was looking at leaving and wondering how to leave her financial advisor. We'll talk about why she wanted to leave her advisor. And I actually gave her some tips on what to do. And I think people may be surprised, OG, that um, that some of the things that she was frustrated about, maybe she shouldn't have been as frustrated about, but on the other side, things that I think she should have been really more focused on, I was able to help point her in the right direction. So we will have... Not really an interview, more of a recorded conversation from my dad shortwave with this woman and I. Exciting and something different for the show there, but first we have headlines, so let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline today comes to us from Money. Investors doubled their stock market losses in 2018 by making this costly mistake. Here's how to avoid it. This uh, piece written by uh, Sergey Klebnikov. I got to tell you, first of all, I've noticed more and more headlines going to this type of a headline. I get why they do it, OG. I can't stand it. A little clickbaity. Yeah, incredibly. Like, really? I got to click just to see what the mistake is. And then I end up wasting a bunch of, I mean, I'd say 40%, 50% of the time ends up being a complete waste of time. I'm like, oh, come on. just You're you're batting better average than me. Isn't it like closer to like 90% of the time? Maybe, like yeah. These seven steps you must do to remain wealthy forever. Yeah, I don't like, need okay. any of those. Uh, Sergey writes, when investors panic, they can shoot themselves in the foot. New data suggests that's what happened late last year. It's no secret 2018 was a wild year for investors in the stock market. I wouldn't even say that. I hate that hyperbole. There you go. I'd say even the just the last quarter was kind of a wild ride, not the entire year. Even wild is. The S&P 500 hit a record high by late September before falling more than 7% in October, more than 9% <gasps> in December. Percent. Seven whole percent. Bad trading decisions caused the average U.S. investor to, to lose roughly twice as much as the S&P 500's decline, according to a new study from Dalbar, a financial services marketing firm. The S&P retreated 4.38%, while everyday investors lost 9.42% on the year on average. Investors on the whole pulled money out of the market in every month in which the S&P 500 yielded positive returns, according to release from Dalbar. In August, which was a good month for the market, for example, the S&P returned 3.26 compared to the average investor's 1.8. In October, a bad month for stocks, S&P fell by 6.84. Investors lost nearly eight. So ugly. Yeah. I love Dalbar. I love this Dalbar study that they do. Now they've got, gosh, almost 30 years of data that you can go back and look at to see the comparison of the average investment return versus the average investor return. And the disparity is quite pronounced. I also think that some of it, to be fair, because I want to look at this from a different perspective also. If you were down 10% last year and the S&P was down six, that could have been bad trading. It could have been bad decision-making, or it could have been the fact that you had some of your money invested in something that went down 20. 
like international or emerging market. So if you're a little bit more diversified than just the S&P, you might have experienced a little bit uh, more volatility, more more variability, sure, in the return. And that's why I hate using the S&P as a as a benchmark. We don't have any other good benchmarks to use, so we like to compare ourselves to it. But that's an absence of a financial plan. When you can design your own financial plan and you say, okay, here's where I need to be. My money needs to grow at 7.3% a year. And you can collect a, uh, or put together a collection of the right investments that have a high likelihood of reaching that 7.3% a year on average over a long period of time. Who gives a crap what the S&P does or doesn't do or, you know, whatever. I've never met anybody, and Joe, you've worked as an advisor with retirees as well. I've never met anybody who got to the end of their life and went, so, oh, gee, listen, I was looking at the numbers. Um, while I didn't run out of money, which was the primary goal, I'm really upset that I got 8.3% for the last 30 years of my life instead of 86 So, yeah. Because the goal isn't to beat the market. The goal isn't to do better than Bill. It's not to do better than this or to do have more variability or less than that or alpha or these are all just numbers. The only thing that matters is can you do the stuff you want to do with the money that you have and not run out? That's the only thing that matters. And, and by the way, and part of that means having money available when you need it. And anybody that says they should put all their money in a, uh, as an example, the S and P 500 or a total stock market fund, and pull money from there. When you look at sequence of returns, when you, when you look at when markets go down, having all your money in that single fund is absolutely ridiculous. Well, it's the purpose of diversification. You know, I'm obviously very strongly on the side of all equities all the time because I don't know why you wouldn't do that. But the asterisk that most people don't remember or ever hear me say because they tune out when I say all equities is you also have to have the two years worth of cash set aside because you're right. There's no guarantee that tomorrow's going to be better than yesterday. And at the end of the day, you got to have a safe place to draw money from for a period of time. Diversification is being okay with the fact that you're going to have some things that are drastically underperforming other things. That's the whole purpose of diversification. Here's what I like that I've seen good financial planners do. And frankly, that anybody can do. This isn't limited to, to financial planners. When you look at that return you need, let's say it's 7%, you can go to the Efficient Frontier, which we've also talked about in the past, go to the Efficient Frontier, find out what asset mix has gotten you there historically with the least amount of risk, put together that portfolio. And by the way, that will then give you some metrics so that you know how your portfolio is going to respond or should respond during different market stimuli. So during the downturns, if you're taking 15% less risk than the market, you should see your portfolio bounce around 15% less. If it's more, which happened to a lot of people, I'm sure, you know, they're they're in asset classes that did worse during these particular economic stimuli. Those people's portfolio will perform worse. What I like about that, here's what I like about it, is that then you can go to your custom benchmark and say, did I do what I was supposed to do? Instead of this article, which says the S&P 500 did X and I didn't do X because I had emerging markets or whatever it might be. I think that's the really big part there that a lot of investors miss is 
figuring out what the rate of return is that they need for their goals in conjunction with the range of returns that are acceptable to them. Everybody loves to be all stock, all S&P, all emerging market, all small cap growth when those things are doing really great. But very few people take the time to actually sit down and figure out, and very few advisors do this too, and figure out, here's what that means on the other end of that stick. You want to be all S&P 500, that's fine, but here's the range of returns that you have to be okay with. And armed with that data, then you're not going to write to us. And listen, our listeners are smart people. And even we experienced a big surge in people asking, what should I do now? Remember fourth quarter? We get letters all the time that say, how should I prepare for the inevitable downturn? Yeah. Uh, But we had a big upsurge in those in the fourth quarter last year. We had a big upsurge. Oh my goodness. Not sure my money's in the right place. Yeah. Start with investing. Well, guess what? (laughs) When it's down 20% is not, that's not the time to make the determination that actually I don't like being down 20. Yeah. Start with your investment policy, how your investment should be allocated. Know what the jiggliness is. That's the technical term, by the way, of that portfolio, the jiggliness factor. Wouldn't that be funny if it was like J squared was a thing? There's like alpha, beta, J squared. What's J squared? Uh, That's your jiggliness. Maybe not. Sometimes my jiggliness is like J cubed. (laughs) And that's why... I have a little more jiggliness than other people sometimes. That's why this episode (laughs) is brought to you by MetPro. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And Peloton. Yeah. But if you start from there, I think you you weather this storm so much better than it looks like most people did. That's that's horrible. Our second piece, which I thought is a nice coupling, it comes to us from Market Watch. You know how everybody, if you read too much about finance lately, OG, is into the inverted yield curve. I mean, how many times in the last couple of weeks have you read about the inverted yield curve? Well, to be honest, a zero, but I know it exists. I don't read about it. So for those of you not uh, reading as much about this as I do, when the yield curve inverts, historically, that means we... Top Gun, I was inverted. Yes. Keeping up international relations, giving (laughs) giving them the bird. I'm sorry, that does that. No, not that. That's a whole different thing. The Uh, inverted yield curve means... Beach volleyball. Yes. When it comes to uh, short-term interest rates are generally lower than long-term interest rates because if I'm going to loan OG money over the short term, I know how things are maybe going to be the next year or two, few years. So I can loan it to him safely to lower interest rate because I know what's going on with the degree of certainty. For a 30-year loan, the reason why a 30-year mortgage is an example is at a m- much higher interest rate than a, let's say, one-year arm. It's because of the fact that I don't know where things are going to be over the next 30 years. So I'm going to make sure that for the risk I'm taking, I get uh, more for my money. Well, the yield curve is inverted, which means interest rates are lower over the long term than they are over the short term. Means that's because investors think there's some trouble ahead. So, and all of a sudden lately, everybody's worried. Oh my goodness, the recession's coming. Been doing the show seven years, over seven years. And how often have we talked the about media has, I would say the media has successfully predicted 32 of the last six recessions. Yeah. Impending doom. We haven't had one since we started the show. And yet we consistently have this. So that's the setup. That and our first piece about investors doing the wrong thing again in the fourth quarter. 
This piece comes to us from MarketWatch and is written by Sonny O. Why the world's biggest bond investor is dismissing the recession warning of the yield curve. The head of the world's largest bond fund says investors shouldn't read too much into the recessionary signal coming from the U.S. Treasury market. In an interview with MarketWatch, Daniel Avasian, Group Chief Investment Officer of Pacific Investment Management Company, or PIMCO, said too many market participants were watching for an economic downturn by monitoring the twists and turns of the yield curve, which saw the rate on a 10-year treasury fall below the three-month T-bill yield on March 22nd, March, marking the first such inversion since 2007. An inversion of the 10-year slash three-month measure of the curve has been highlighted by researchers at the San Francisco Fed as a highly reliable recession warning signal, typically preceding a downturn by more than a year. However, the piece says, Avasian says investors have become overly anxious about recessionary signals despite evidence that the domestic economy remains solid. He said decelerating U.S. growth and lower terminal interest rates did point to falling yields, but he felt the recent rally was overstretched. I think it's funny that, you know, we 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 read these these things, these alarm bells, and we immediately think we immediately think that we should react. And I just like this idea that the largest active bond trader, OG, doesn't think that needs to be the case. Well, and of course, if you're a long term investor, it wouldn't matter anyway if you were getting into a recession. I think, what was it, Peter Lynch that said more money's lost preparing for the next bear market than actually in the bear market? You know, if the market goes down 20% or 25 or 30%, that totally sucks. But what sucks worse is when you're expecting it to go down, and it does, but it happens after it's gone up another 50%. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? He points to the fact, too, that there could be other concerns that have created this inverted yield curve. He says a combination of technical factors, including increased demand for longer dated treasuries because of a sharp uptick in mortgage refinancing applications, may have amplified a recent bond market rally, helping an inversion form even as the tight labor market and global growth outlook has yet to point to an imminent end to the U.S.'s second longest expansion since World War II. I find that interesting too. A lot of people, listen, might not know that these treasuries are offered at auction. So people are really excited about the long term and a lot of people flood that marketplace. Different than, if you think about this, different than um, an auction, let's say, at a house where people, let's say there's a, I don't know, a painting or something and people bid the price up. Here, you as you bid the price up, you're, what you're really doing is bidding the yield down. Because right. the government says, hey, who will accept the lowest interest rate from us? We'll borrow money from you, right? I mean, it's as if you're comparing five different credit card offers, which which one has the lowest interest rate, or five different loan offers, which one has the lowest interest rate. You're probably going to go with that person. The government's the same. So if there's a lot of people that are bidding, the government's going to end up getting a lower interest rate on this long-term debt. And he says that might be people excited about it. There's always two different sides to the story. I know that there's a lot of post facto support for this turning into a, a recessionary indicator, but I think the very beginning you said it's you know usually year out, so it's really hard to tie that cause and effect to it. I mean, if we had a recession in 2023, could you look at this and say, well, you know, I mean, the inverted yield curve back in 19 
or I'm sorry, back in 2019 proved it. You know, like how far away can you get from that happening before you can say it's not cause and effect anymore? So I think it's a little bit of a red herring a little bit here. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think the bigger the bigger point probably is, though, you can't read all this news about things like an inverted yield curve and go, oh, that's it. That's that's the signal. That's the one. Cash. And what's funny, and I want to be clear here, before people write us, we've got some listeners who think that we, we speak in uh, just black and white scenarios. What we're saying is it's gray. We're not saying it's not. We're not saying it is. I think we're saying, oh, gee, has... You don't know. And the second that you think you know what's coming next, that's when you get smoked the most. The market figures out a way to disappoint the greatest number of people. It's incredible. Look at how many people got disappointed the first half of last year. I think that's our number one lesson is don't don't go thinking you know more than the market, number one. And number two is rather than ask, what should I do now with the factors happening now, why not give yourself an investment policy statement? set up your investments based on your end goal and then manage them according to that end goal instead of comparing yourself to the S&P 500. Well, this is interesting and something we've never done here. I was uh, lucky to have a conversation with somebody who listens to the show was frustrated with their financial advisor and was able to kind of coach them through what the next steps were. Uh, she was nice enough to say that we could record that conversation as long as we kept her private, uh, who she is. So I think relatives may still know who she is. <laughs> like, wait a minute. That sounds like Betsy's voice. I don't know. But for the vast majority of us, if we're thinking, what should our relationship with our advisor be like? And if we want to move money from one spot to another. How does that all get done? You're going to hear me talking to uh, this woman right now, and uh, we'll we'll kind of set this up as we go, because it's not so much an interview, OG, as you get to be a fly on the wall listening to this uh, conversation. We're going to enter this conversation partway through. For those of you who don't know, I used to be a financial planner, and when I uh, was contacted by uh, this listener. We'll call her Patricia. She had some great questions that we get often, and she was nice enough to allow me to record our conversation. So she'd already told me that they had uh, two different types of investments. They had stocks and they had a Roth IRA with an advisor at a big firm. The name of the firm really isn't important, so we're going to leave that out because, frankly, if you're thinking about leaving an advisor, the firm has a lot less to do with it than you might think on the outside. I know that when it comes to the advertising that you see on television, it appears that all these firms are the same and all the people inside the firms are the same. At many firms where friends of mine worked or still work and also at the firm where I was, advisors varied greatly even though there may be phenomenal training. It's intensely personal. Advisors also are given a lot of leeway to do what they think is best. So a lot of the time, people think I should move my money from X place. And really what they need to do is leave X advisor. So 
we're going to pick up with me asking about the conversation between Patricia, her husband, and her advisor. You're saying the advisor just started putting the money in it? Uh, like you guys just signed a form and he just put the money in it? Um, I'm afraid not not clearly. Well, the conversation was we agreed on what our strategy was. And uh, he, we agreed that for our age group where we are, mid to high risk was the way to go. He told that he he told us that he they usually invest in something Russell funds. Yeah. Okay. Something Rus something Russell and BlackRock. Yeah. yeah. And based on our age group, he suggested BlackRock. And mind you, we didn't know much. We trusted him, and he was like, "Sure, let's go ahead and do it." And um, and, and that's what we did. But now we no longer qualify for uh, Roth either. So that's that's a whole new story. We are trying to figure out how to do it and if we need to do it. I would love to know what this fund is because I'm looking at the uh, I'm looking okay. at the, the BlackRock funds here. It's just is eighty twenty allocation fund. I might have that in the initial email no, or does something it, like. Does it just have a ticker symbol, like a five-digit symbol next to it or five letters? I don't even see that. That's the channel. Let me get on my computer because I'm trying to use my phone and their mobile uh, portal seems uh, to be a little bit off. Just bear okay. with me. I'm going to pause the conversation here for a moment. You know, this is uh, something that Mike Foy from J.D. Power just talked with us about is that too many financial advisory firms not paying enough attention to their website and being able to get information quickly online. So while this is disheartening that she's having trouble pulling it up, it isn't surprising to me that a big firm that she's working with has a clunky interface on the phone and she has to switch over to the computer. Back to our conversation. Here's what I'm trying to determine, by the way. I'm trying to determine I'm trying to determine if where you're invested meets your goals. Because before you move anywhere, it's, it's important to know what has to move and what doesn't. And not that it all shouldn't move from your advisor, but maybe the position's correct as is. And if the position is correct and the advisor has to go, then that's fine. But if the position is is fine, I see people sell stuff that they shouldn't sell all the time just because their advisor sucks or their advisor's bad at communication or it's not a, you know, it's not a love connection. So rather than just throw out everything, we may have some stuff that we can salvage. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope so. Honestly, I mean, he seems like a nice stand-up man. I didn't expect him to start acting out this way. So that was a bit of shocker. And really, as I started looking more into him, turns out he mostly works with people who retire. Yeah, right. Right? So they they have a big lump sum to work with. Right. Whereas we are, you know, and we very we were very clear initially letting him know that, you know, we have a real estate background, we like what we do, and we want to continue that, but we want to also diversify. So he knew that we were not going to plug in all the money. Sure. But then suddenly he just changed his tone and he was like, well, you guys are not worth my time. Did he use those words? Honestly, this is what he did. We called him to express to him how we felt, how humiliating the whole email experience was, to which he says, well, think about this way. When you go to a high-end restaurant and, uh, you know, you don't, you just have too many questions to ask, but you're not buying good buying the best things on the menu, they might not give you the same amount of time. They might have to deal with you, but they might not give you the time. (laughs) 
And honestly, I, I, I know. I mean, should I laugh? Should I be upset? I was absolute. I was so upset. And I tried to express to him that, listen, this is not how business works. You knew what we were. You got into this knowing nobody lied to each other. If you have a criteria, you should have said uh-huh. that to us initially. But, yes, you know, right. it was pretty clear that he wasn't interested. He made it very clear because they, the way he handled us was a little bit rude. And I tried to make that to him. And he, the what it came out of the conversation was he's not sorry. He's like you asked too many questions for the amount of money you put in with us. That's, that's a, I'm, I'm only laughing because it's so not funny. And when... Uh, when you talked to us about your first uh, discussion with him and told us what he said, OG said, I can't believe we can understand based on the type of advisor he is, what he's saying, but his lack of velvet on his hammer is just absolutely, absolutely incredible. So exactly, you know, yeah. but my point was, dude, why didn't you tell yes. us that before? At the beginning, you know, sure. yes. because he takes money from us, we pay him, you know. Well, thousand dollars flat fee and then among other commissions and one percent just tell us beforehand let me ask about that let me ask about that thousand dollar flat fee then because that alone should make it worth his time did it uh, what did you receive in exchange for that did you guys talk about what your goals are and um look through all of the uh you know your budget and your risk management what did you get in exchange for that well, he asked us how much debt we had, how much money we were making, what our goals were. Okay, cool. You know, uh, you know, if we had any health issues, uh, if we wanted to have kids, and just a lot of things. And uh, and then two days later, he gave us a plan. Uh, you know, which spoke about that we need term insurance, that my life insurance was short, uh, that we are on track for retirement. Uh, you know, but if you want to invest more, and considering our age, uh, mid too aggressive is the best way to go for us. Okay. So th- that was it. The plan was emailed to us and he never followed up after that. Um, it was emailed to you. So you guys didn't sit down and go over the, uh, the strategy. No, the conversation we had with him was the one hour conversation in the beginning. Honestly, I would yes. say he knows what he's doing, but unfortunately, I think he doesn't think we are the right fit. And I wish he well, told us that. Well, sure. And just for, you know, and and just for our listeners, the the most important part of the plan is is not that first discovery meeting, even though from a sales point of view, is selling you on the relationship. That's an important meeting, but the real key is that is defining the plan. And actually, because at this point it's his plan and he's emailed it to you. It isn't your plan. It's his plan. And really you don't need his plan. You need your own plan. So an email document, it's just his suggestions to me, isn't a plan. It's a sales letter. And and honestly, Joe, if I may add more, I think for, for, for a young couple who did not know how to invest, that document did not make sense. No, it doesn't do you know? anything. That's it, exactly it, right. It, it had all these numbers that we would buy 67. We would have $6 million, you know, but we don't want to work until 67. You know, what if we change our mind? It was absolutely right. a, a machine of software used where our details were 
were plugged in and it just printed that. Yeah. And that's the key is that once he comes up with those first numbers and then you say, there's no way I want to, you know, knowing that information, could I then be financially independent earlier? What's the earliest age I could achieve financial independence just for, you know, and you know, everything's going to change. Right. But for now, what are we shooting at? And then he goes back and then does the legwork, which frankly you could do on your own, but if you're paying him a thousand bucks, that's what that money covers is for him to do the dirty work because he can do it faster and easier and you paid him. And then he comes back and says, guess what? Instead of 65 or 70 or whatever it is, that age could be 49. And now at 49, Mm -hmm. we have a problem because that $60,000 in stocks isn't enough to get you between 49 and 60 when you can get it most of your money. You know what I mean? And then then the plan starts to develop from there once you've had a few back and forth talking about, okay, what numbers really makes sense for what we want. But uh, yeah, that's, that's incredibly frustrating. And to go back to, you know, the fund in which he invested our Roth. Yes. Um, uh, so I found the number. Good. It's called Black BlackRock 8020 Target Allocation Investor CLC. Uh, and the symbol for that is BCAPX. BCAPX. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, oh boy. So let's go over what you have. Here's what I did. I went to a website that I love called Morningstar, morningstar.com. Mm-hmm. It's a th- love that too. Yep. It's yep. a third party site. And I just looked up your fun. I don't know if you were able to do this with your fun. I did that. That's where I realized that this was not the right fit because he won't answer any questions. And while listening to your show, I found out about Morningstar and I started looking at where he was putting our money. And when I started questioning him, that's where he got upset that why am I questioning him so much? Because this is this fund is sold with a commission attached, it has uh, a little alphabet soup at the end. So the very first thing that I look at, this is a BlackRock 8020 target allocation class C. An A share means he's going to charge you maybe a 5 or 6% fee to buy it. He doesn't want to do that because of the fact that, that you already paid him a thousand bucks and he probably didn't want to go over it. Did he go over how the fees are charged on this fund with you at all? Uh, I'm afraid no, he didn't. And, you know, that's where my role came in. I tend to be very, very particular on, you know, I'm I'm very type A with money. I want (laughs) to have a budget. I want to know. And he wasn't having it. There could be then a class B share. So A share is he charges it up front. So if it were BlackRock 8020 target allocation A, B means it would be in back and, and to sell it. There's no fee to buy. But you have to hold it for probably six years and then there's a fee to sell it. Class C means there's a little higher expense, normally a 1% higher expense internally. And then he probably doesn't charge a fee or maybe there's a small 1% fee up front. Uh, in fact, this one says there's a 1% fee up front. Now, now that's about the fee. So he's getting paid internally by BlackRock to sell you this fund. So you're he's getting $1,000 plus uh, money from BlackRock. It's not a, it's not a lot of money uh, because you don't have mm-hmm. a lot, because you don't have a lot invested in it. So, right. um, but he's probably, he's probably making 80 bucks, I'd say now. Uh, and that's per year, by the way, based on your $11,000. As you put more money in, he'll make more money. Ah. The big thing here though, it's a BlackRock 80-20 target allocation. Now, what he's trying to do is because you don't have a lot of money in Roth IRAs, on one hand, he's doing something very smart. 
he's diversifying your portfolio without costing him a lot of trading fees. Now you don't know this, but on the inside, he gets, he gets uh, charged every time that he places a trade and he eats those fees. So of the $80 he may pay, and I don't know what the fee is, but let's say he pays 10 or 20 bucks of it. So he's going to try to keep his trading costs low. And at the same time, make sure that you're adequately diversified. So because of that, and because you're starting with a small number, he's going to mm-hmm. re- he's going to recommend a target date fund or a target this in this case is called a target allocation fund where oh. where it's going to be 80% stocks, 20% bonds. And uh, so then you end up with a diversified portfolio of stuff. And actually when you look at your top holdings, you, the the number one thing that you own you own 20% of your money is in the total U.S. stock market ETF. Now, he owns the iShares. People online always talk about buying this, but they talk about buying the Vanguard model of this same exact fund. Well, okay. your, your, your fee for that fund, by the way, the iShare core S&P total U.S. stock market, not that different than the Vanguard version. So in terms of, uh-huh. in terms of, of, of that... You, you already have pretty much the same thing that you hear a lot of people online buy. Uh, okay. ne- next, though, is is the Master Advisor Large Cap Core Fund. This is a uh, now large cap means large company, and ten mm-hmm. percent of your money's in that. This actually is an actively managed fund. I don't know what the Master Advisor Large Cap Core Fund is, but it's an actively managed fund, and ten percent of your money's in that. And you kind of go, mm, that's weird. And then next is uh, iShares Global Technology Exchange Traded Fund, and then U.S. Total Bond Index, and then a core S and P small cap. So, so you're you're pretty well diversified. Okay, you've, you've got money in lots of different places. Here's here's the kicker: the the expense on this fund, and this, by the way, folks, is why. OG and I can't stand target date and target allocation funds. Everybody writes into us and goes, but Vanguard has a great one. We're not talking about Vanguard. We're talking about most of them. And this falls under the most of them. Here's what we have here. We have BlackRock taking, taking your money, diversifying it mostly among stuff that they own, because guess what? BlackRock owns iShares, diversifying it among stuff that they own. And the fee internally, the fee is 1.45%. You've got that fee as a management fee on top of the internal funds. So you've got your internal funds, which have a fee, plus the expense of 1.45. So you're getting hammered with fees. Here's, Here's what's funny about this, though, is that when Morningstar looks at this, they give you a fee level. Morningstar says this fee level is below average for that category. He still is charging you less money than a lot of these funds charge. And 1.45 versus you could get the same thing at a Vanguard, let's say, for uh, a third of that um, is just absolutely ridiculous. So uh, this is why we hate target allocation funds. So did he do the wrong thing? He charged you a fee level that was below average. He diversified your money, I think, probably pretty appropriately, just based on the little bit that we talked about. Like, directionally, it looks fine. Um, He's not really making a ton of money on the funds. He's making a little money. Okay, the guy's got to make money somehow. Mm -hmm. Still, you could do better. What worries me more, though, more than any of that, what worries me more than the fee, more than any of that, is the fact that he didn't explain 
any of that stuff to you. And when you ask him questions, he doesn't want to be bothered with them. That's, that's, that's where the problem is, not necessarily the fun. So, Joe, if I can ask you a question, right? If we, so at this point of time, knowing that, you know, this is where we are invested, would you recommend moving this movie um, money to perhaps, you know, Charles Swap, TD Ameriprise, like, and just investing in something similar, but at a lower expense ratio? Well, here's here's the interesting thing. I'm actually more worried about the individual stocks because neither of you have time to uh, manage the individual stock portfolio. So my head actually is more there. $11,000 in, in a BlackRock Roth that's not phenomenal. Okay, we need to fix that. But but there's really no timer on any of this. The 58000 in stocks, something bad could happen at Facebook. Well, something already bad has happened at Facebook before. Tesla, uh, bad things have happened at. And, um, and, and you own those and your reaction time isn't what it probably should be on an individual stock portfolio. So I think for me, that's the, that's the harder conversation for you to have. But that's also the where more money is going to be made or lost because it's six times the uh, impact of a 10% move there than your Roth IRA is. Um, okay. So here's, here's the painful question to ask. How long have you had this inheritance money? Oh, God. I want to say around 12 years. Okay. The reason I yeah. ask that is because you said some of these stocks existed before that. And, and here's the, here's, here's what happens. You may already know this, but the cost basis on these stocks. Now we're looking at taxes because this isn't in a tax shelter. We have to worry about the tax implications of any trade. When somebody passes away, you get what's called a step up in basis, meaning immediately, whatever the price was, let's say a Facebook on the day that your relative died, that own these, that is your basis. So what a lot of people will do is they will immediately sell everything because of the fact that they don't have any, there's no tax consequence to do that. So we're going to want to, you're going to want to look back and see what the tax implications are of, of, uh, of selling individual stocks and kind of doing something more like weeding the garden. I think for the two of you, if you're busy, having $60,000 in stock doesn't make a lot of sense. Having maybe $10,000 in a Robinhood account that your husband can play with because he likes to do it way better and then have the other 50 let's say in something that is that is either you know passive index funds or manage something though that's going to be going to kind of go more where the market is instead of just where an individual stock would go so really if i understand you correctly um uh, does that mean if to translate into more simpler words, it would be, you know, keeping maybe $10,000 or, you know, if he wants to, or just perhaps thinking about rolling this all into, you know, ETF or something like that. Yes, exactly. I get excited about owning individual stocks just from a knowledge perspective. But if he, if he really likes that, I wouldn't make it this big a percentage of your portfolio here. I mean, we haven't talked about 401ks and that kind of stuff, but of the stuff that's here, that's a, that's a fairly big number to have, you know, floating in stocks that you can't track that closely. Okay. That's a good point. Thank you so much. So why are we doing all this? We're doing all this ahead of time because your question is, where do we move it? And it's important to different places are better at different things and knowing where to move it 
really revolves around these discussions. And the cool thing we know right now is that even though the IRAs could be invested better directionally, they're going to move wherever that river takes them. It's going to move a little slower than the river goes, but it's still going to go where the river goes. So I'm not that worried time-wise about that. You can get to that in a month, three months, six months. I think you're going to be fine. The stocks could change, you know, in the next 10 minutes while we're talking. So I'm, that's why I'm much more worried about those. Um, okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about moving this. Clearly you have to leave this advisor. He's, his goals are not on pace with yours. Um, right. So I think about where the money is now. You're at, without going into the firm, you're at a big firm. You're at a firm where there's a lot of different people. You're also at a firm that, that, that historically, from my point of view, actually has a decent reputation in the community. So the bad news is, is you have a big firm with advisors um, uh, that can also accept a commission as we saw with your advisors, because it's a big firm, there can be, for lack of a better term there, uh, the, the, so, so the good thing about hiring a small firm is that, you know, exactly who you're getting, you're getting X person. The good thing about a big firm is there's a lot of other advisors at that firm. And instead of having to sell everything, if you think that you need an advisor and you just want a better one, you may be able to stay with that firm, but interview other advisors. Those advisors, by the way, and this is, and people do this all the time, advisor A at big firm doesn't work out. They go interview advisor B, C, D, and E at the same firm. Um, That advisor, by the way, uh, uh, will, may tell your current advisor that you are looking around. So let's talk about talking to your, that you talk to them. So as an example, let's say that OG and I work at the same firm. You're with OG. He's a crappy advisor. You come meet with me. Uh, That was just a little dig at OG on purpose (laughs) because because he's not here. Um, I may, as a professional courtesy, tell OG that I'm having a meeting with you. Let's walk through this, the implications of that. From everything that you've told me, who cares? Because your advisor's already proven to you, he's not going to call you about those individual stocks and recommend any moves. He's not going to do it. There is there, there is a 0.0% chance that he's... Listen, if he hasn't called you about Tesla yet, he isn't going to call you. Number two is that BlackRock fund, as I mentioned, it's not the right fund, but it's not something I'm super worried about. Like, we got to move it right now. It's not a burning building. So you may want to think about if you do want an advisor sticking with the same firm so that all you have to do is sign one paper and then you go over to the new advisor who works better on your behalf. If if you don't want to do that, there's a bunch of paperwork. The big thing to do is to move the stocks. The problem is, is that uh, different advisors work with different clearing houses. So if, if you want somebody's help on managing that portfolio with you, you really want to use the same platform that advisor uses. Okay. And this is where, this is where the rubber really hits the road. And that is have an advisor or not have an advisor. And, and, and that one I can't answer. We actually just had 
the guy on the show talking about he thinks everybody needs an advisor. I certainly think that having smart people in your corner is always a good idea, whether that's somebody that knows what they're doing, a trusted friend, uh, whoever. Just having smart people in your corner makes sense. Whether that's a certified financial planner or not, I can't answer that. But, uh, but I think that's decision number one. Because until you answer that, that um, question, then you'll know where you're going to move that money. If you go, listen, I, I just want to have smart people in my corner. I don't want a, a certified financial planner. Uh, I'm going to handle the actual money movement pieces myself. Then we can talk about brokerages that are the right place to do that. If you're looking for a relationship, though, with somebody, we really want to wait until you've interviewed people to find out what platform they use and move it over to the platform that that advisor used so that they're able to help you pull the strings. So if you decide then that that you can't have or or don't want an advisor, then then there's very simply only a few choices there um, that that have uh, do-it-yourself brokerage accounts. Really, it comes down to just choosing an an, an E-Trade and Ameritrade, uh, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, uh, Vanguard Brokerage. Uh, who else? I wouldn't use a Robinhood personally, um, just because it's so Spartan. It's so there's nothing that th- th- they don't have any tools at all. So sure, you're going to get free, but there's a bunch of crap that comes with free that you might not want. <clears throat> Someone like maybe even an M1 Finance. M1 Finance says uh, has quite a few tools and they don't charge anything. Uh, deciding among those really means just visiting those few sites, Charles Schwab. So Schwab, Fidelity, E-Trade, uh, uh, M1 Finance. And Ameritrade, right? And Fidelity. Those yeah. were the names. Yeah, and uh, Vanguard. Okay. But, you know, the bigger question is, let's say if we decided for long term not to have a financial planner, Within these company, which one is the best to go long term? If we wanted to do this long term, let's say just by ourselves, and we want to continue just build our our network by ourselves, within these brokerage account uh, companies, which one would you recommend is a good one for long term? Because when we spoke to Ameritrade and they told us very bluntly that Charles Schwab has a tendency of pushing their funds on you, so be careful. What's yeah. your take on it? Well, uh, I think that uh, every company has their shtick. All these companies are selling something. To me, to me, because they all have a huge platform that includes stuff that's not just them, if you can understand what the difference is between a sales pitch and a platform and just use the platform and endure the sales pitch that everybody has, Mm-hmm. To me, they're all the same. I mean, they th- those are those are five good tools that are so close to each other. You're not going to call me up when you're 65 years old and go, "Damn it, Joe!" Because I chose uh, Charles Schwab, my retirement was really screwed up. It ain't going to happen. I mean, it can happen if you fall for sales pitches. But Schwab has a really, really wide uh, moat of things that you can buy there. As does as does TD Ameritrade. As does my money. My money personally is at M1 mm-hmm. Finance and TD Ameritrade. Those are the two places I use. Paula Pant, my friend Paula, who's on every Friday, has her own show. Uh, she is at she is at um, is at Vanguard. OG because he's a financial planner and has a lot of financial planning clients uses Dimensional Funds, which is a phenomenal product that you have to have an advisor to get. So you know what I mean. It's a tool. 
And I think those are five great knives. And it's just, at this point, it's going to be more about how you use the knife than, than, than the tool. Using any of those five, I don't believe you're stepping in it. Okay. All right. And, and overall, the process should be very easy, right? We just call them and I'm sure there would be a lot of paperwork, but that's something, you know, if we wanted to do it just by ourselves for a few years, it is possible to just roll over the money into someone else's uh, brokerage account. Absolutely. At this point now, once you decide among those five, then you then then they will send you out some paperwork. The process may take for flipping ever, by the way. It's annoying. You got to continually follow up. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, and then once the money once the money gets there, uh, and I would, frankly, I would roll that Roth IRA over as cash. So there's a box you can check that says cash it in and move the cash over. That's fine. Move the stocks in kind. And the reason you want to move the stocks in kind is because you, you, you want to decide which ones stay and which ones go. You know, as I mentioned, that's the longer conversation. So you want to decide which you keep. Once that money gets there, though, then you're going to want to start selling stuff. Also, before the money moves... Anything you bought at, at your old firm with this advisor, you want to make sure you get the cost basis of before you leave because the cost basis won't come with you. Meaning the price that you bought everything at, you want to have a record of all that stuff before you move it because otherwise when you go to sell it later, you're going to have this big problem on your tax form trying to figure out what the hell you paid for it. Make sure you've got all those records before you move. And there you have it. I think the important parts of the conversation there from my takeaway, uh, number one, it's more about where you're going to than where you're at now. So take a hard look, not just at the relationship that you're in that's not working, but about the individual positions. Because in this particular case, the one that uh, she was very focused on, I think, was not the problem. I thought it was the, the other one. And so certainly that need to be moved first. The, the one she was more worried about, I think, uh, could be moved second. Also, it might be easier than you think. If you're at a big firm and you want to change advisors, one slip of paper and you can do that. And everything stays where it is. And then you can take your time sorting through it. Otherwise, if you're going to change firms, look to the firm that's either going to be A, working with your advisor or B, the one that works best with the type of assets that you're getting into. So once again, we start with the goals and have records of everything so that you don't get caught on tax day when you finally do sell, trying to uh, remember what your cost basis was. Big thanks to Patricia here, not a real name, for letting us record that. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I think it's time we fed you some trivia for you to impress all your friends with around the water cooler. Throw this curveball at them. You can't think big money cities without thinking of New York. And on today's date in 1904, Long Acre Square, named after the square in London, was renamed to something much better known today. What is it? following is an actor, not a real person. We tried to find an actual Stacking Benjamins podcast listener, but we're not sure any exist. Yesterday, I turned on one of those other podcasts. Ugh, more money talk? The topic was something called long-term care. 
and they couldn't even make me care for the short term. That podcast made me feel like just another number. Hi, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, the huge star of the award-winning Stacking Benjamin Show. Are you tired of podcasts that blabber on about money? Are you confused about all this IRA, SEPP, 72T, and fiduciary talk? At Stacking Benjamins, you're not just another number to us. Heck, if you actually listen, you're the only number. That's why we barely ever talk about money. Better yet, we treat you like family. We'll invite you on down to Joe's mom's basement, serve you some pie and maybe even a little lemonade, and best yet, when you leave, we'll complain about you behind your back. Because that's what real family moments are all about. I'm never going back to that old podcast. Stacking Benjamins is a way for me to avoid numbers and feel that warm, fuzzy feeling I get every time I scream at my sister on the phone. Stacking Benjamins, where you're not a number. Your family. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And are you ready to amaze your friends with your trivia knowledge? Hope so, because we got a good one for you today. The city most synonymous with money in the USA is New York. And in that city, until today's date in 1904, there was an uptown area called Long Acre Square after a similar spot in London. What was the new name? Well, just after one of the city's two newspapers moved into the area, Mayor George McClellan renamed the area from Long Acre Square, or also known as Satan Circus, which, by the way, is a way cooler name than the new one. Well, what was that new one? The new name for Long Acre Square was Times Square. The Times was only in the square for a short period, including the first year of the New Year's Eve ball drop, but it was enough for upscale hotels, more theaters, and other attractions to make this part of New York a tourist center even to this day. Big thanks to her for letting us record that phone call, but I think it shows, OG, that what you're focused on and what maybe you should be focused on are two different things. And it's funny, we're having a discussion right now in our Facebook group, The Basement, about working with an advisor. And people consistently, consistently look at investment management and financial advisor as the same flipping thing. And they're not. And they're not. Well, just like anything, you know, I mean, obviously I'm a little biased here as my family is fed by the work that I do. But there's good people and there's not good people. There's good relationships, not good relationships. And more importantly, there's good people for you. And then there's not good people for you. You know, the type of work that I do and for the people that I do it for, it fits and it may not fit for other people. You know, we've talked on our show before. We've got tons of people that listen to this that are really, really, really smart and do a lot of good stuff. But the best people that I work with, and you've, you've mentioned the best people that you worked with, are the people that recognize that they can do this on their own. But they also recognize that there's other things that they want to do with their time or their life or want to find blind spots or whatever the case may be. And that's perfectly fine too. And then those are, then there are people who don't care about that stuff and that's fine too. Well, the big thing here is just look at when she's on the phone with me, the number of things that just a third interested party who knows something about how that process works can really help that whole situation, not just explain what you have, but also explain 
how to move it, really what to think about when you move it. I mean, she's all focused on this Roth IRA, which might not be the best Roth IRA, but those stocks, those individual stocks are are what could potentially you know, bring some of the house down versus a much smaller Roth IRA that she's very worried about. Like just having a disinterested party to kind of back you away and go, hey, you ever think about this instead? Mm-hmm. Think is a good thing for all of us, whether it's a financial advisor or just somebody that uh, that knows about what's going on in whatever arena it is you're dealing with. So thanks again. It's also very brave to put yourself out there to uh, let me record that phone call. So thanks. Yeah, we'd like to thank Kathy from Kansas for being on the show. <laughs> right. oh, I mean, uh, social security number. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you have questions for Kathy, you can reach her on her cell phone at six seven eight. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline. We're going to tackle some of life's most important questions right now. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. And we asked our friends over there on our Facebook page exactly what they value first. And our friend Dylan said he likes bourbon and airline miles. Not sure where that came from. Where do you think that came from? I like it. Seems yeah. Sometimes you get those at the same time. Yes. The real answer here, by the way, according to Haven Life, is your loved ones and your time. And if you can have your loved ones and your time for less money while you have bourbon, could be an interesting uh, time with your loved ones. I don't know. That's why they've made buying quality. <laughs> your results may vary. That's why, they've, that's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. The application is brilliant because it's so simple. By the way, my latest mortgage application that I was filling out. So many of these forms had duplicate information that could have very easily been filled in automatically. It was infuriating how many times we had to fill out the same thing over and and, and you know, a lot of the stuff that they're filling out, the people creating these forms haven't even looked at it. Well, we should ask their address here, but you asked my address on 15 other forms. Can't we just autofill all this stuff and get to the, and the other part I found infuriating was the pieces that I really needed to know about, like digging in what I like about the Haven life insurance policy itself is it very clearly tells you what you're buying exactly how it works. I love all that in this mortgage. We're filling out this whole, all this paperwork. And what's funny is of course the closer, right from the title company, the closer going, and this form basically says, da, 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 sign here. And this form basically says like, you know, you know how you can't take four pages of information and just say this form basically says, I don't know. I'm always the guy that goes, oh, remember how I asked you two weeks ago to send me this in advance so I could read it and you didn't? I get to read we're it gonna, We're going to be here a while. Yeah, ours was- Go get yourself a cup of coffee. Ours was triple the amount of time I think that the woman allocated. She was not happy with me. <laughs> Pardon me, I'm not going to sign away a half a million dollars plus interest for the <laughs> next 30 years of my life without reading the fine print. Right. Or in my case, 25,000 bucks, but, but whatever it might be, their application is, is simple. They've actually thought about those pain points and you get instant coverage decision, stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven life. And today on the lifeline, we're throwing it out to Danielle. Say hi, Danielle. Hi, this message is for Joe and OG. This is Danielle. My son recently started his first job. He has special needs, and I don't anticipate he'll be making more than $10,000 in a calendar year. 
but I'm very excited that he's starting on this new journey. We're opening his first bank account, and I think we're going to go with a traditional brick-and-mortar account. I've been researching checking accounts on Magnify Money, and although some of the interest rates look good, I don't anticipate he'll have a lot of money sitting in his account to earn interest. He's going to be working towards learning to live independently, and so that money will be going towards his real-life expenses. And when you're making less than 10000 a year, that doesn't leave much for saving, although I will have him open a savings account. I'm thinking the most important thing in this kind of situation is access to his money. So going with a bank that has plenty of ATMs nearby and maybe even a brick and mortar location so that he, as someone with special needs, has easy access to people who might be able to help him if he has a problem, if I'm not around. Let me know your thoughts. Thanks so much. Thanks for the question, Danielle. And isn't that cool? That's super cool. Congratulations to your son on having a job and also learning about money here, OG. So looking at independent living in the future, what do you think? I think this is a great example where Danielle is actually taking information and turning it into advice relative to her situation. You know, quite often we'll look at the nuance of something take the magnify money piece for a second and go, well, but my credit union pays better than that. And you go, well, but you have $800 there. So you're talking about making 80 cents a year instead of $1.60. That is not worth focusing on when you have all these other circumstances. And that's what she's doing. She's saying, hey, I get that. This might be quote unquote better, but I don't really anticipate there being, (laughs) frankly, a lot of money there. So is it worth going through all the hassle because I have this other thing that is more important, like accessibility and people and that sort of thing. So this is a really good example, I think, of Danielle looking at the forest instead of the actual tree. And yeah, that's this is exactly how you should do it. You should find a good credit union or a good brick and mortar place. I mean, I probably wouldn't go to like, you know, one of the big companies, but somebody in your town or somebody that's got branches throughout the town and you should introduce your son to the banking people. And and you know what I mean? Like there is something about that. We have a credit union account and I've mentioned it before. They're always super easy to deal with. We don't get there very often, but when the kids are there, you know, they have a different experience than just like punching stuff into the computer. And, and I think that's really important from a learning standpoint of money, but especially for your son, like you said, maybe if there's a question or something like that, he's got somebody you can turn to. That's a great reason to have a local relationship as opposed to just always striving for the cheapest or always striving for the best interest or whatever. I don't know exactly uh, what Danielle's son's needs are, but I also still think about technology and think about how more and more the world relies on technology. And I'll give you an example. My my mother-in-law gets frustrated all the time. She doesn't use technology at all. No interest in Facebook or online banking or any of that stuff. And what frustrates her is whenever she talks to a rep from a utility company now, as an example, they say, oh, just go online and change it. And she has to explain to them, I need you to help me because I don't go online. And she said over the past five years, especially, it's become harder and harder and harder to just do normal tasks of daily activities without going online. So still understanding how that world works. I think is also understanding those levers, I think in the future going to be an important part of independent living and more and more banks that aren't brick and mortar 
are learning that it's not just about convenience. It still is about service. I look at, I just got done listening to an audible of uh, delivering happiness, the book about Zappos and uh, delivering great customer service. And here's a, here's a company that was born online, exists online and just known for phenomenal customer service, phenomenal people working for that company, but much easier to get to because you can get at them in different ways. But clearly in this case, OG, I agree with you. Beginning with the end in mind, again, and, and what your primary goal is, much better than the one size fits all. Go with the thing that pays the highest rate. Yep. Thanks for the question, Danielle. We also get letters down here in the basement. And this letter comes to us from Matt. Matt says, as a parent, I've been wondering lately, would it be better for a recent high school grad to forego the college experience and stick the amount of money spent on the education, a hundred to 125,000 and accumulate that into a 401k Roth IRA by the time they've graduated, would this set them up to retire much earlier and give them a good mindset and how money can work for them? Let's assume the kid was able to live at home and have minimal expenses. This is just an exercise in the way we think about money. Not that I want my kid to live with me that long. I'm counting down the days. He says, I would call, leave a message. If you feel the question show worthy, PS love the show. You guys making talk about money, tolerable, bearable. And I might say even enjoyable. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Matt. We are going to address it. We're going to address it right now. What do you think? Instead of paying for college, stick all that money into into long-term investments for them and help them uh, have a leg up. I've heard of people using college money for entrepreneurial endeavors instead. So I'm not going to pay for your college, but I'll give you this college equivalent amount, right? The $110,000 or whatever. And I'll help you buy your first Subway franchise with it. Or, you know, buy this dealership or, you know, whatever whatever sort of entrepreneurial type of thing. It also gives you the ability to make sure that your kid doesn't blow it on, you know, vending machine business or something. Not that, not that those are terrible. Some of them make good money, but you know what I mean? You can kind of pre-screen that a little bit. If you put it into just a regular investment account, that's perfectly fine too. But I think then you also have to make sure that you put some parameters around accessibility you know, if your kid's 18, you know, we do that kind of rule of 72 thing, right? So let's say it doubles every 10 years. So your kid's 18. So 28, 38, 48, 58, right? Doubles four times. So it's 100, 200, 400, 800, 1.6 million by the time they're 58 years old. Does that have a different incentive structure in terms of their own personal savings? Knowing that uh, mom and dad left them a million and a half to $2 million by the time they get to 60? That kind of parallels my thinking, which is, I think we get to this philosophical discussion about what does it mean to be a parent? Like, what is parenting really for? What's it about? And if you think about it, and I think it's this answer is going to be different for every parent, but for me, it was certainly to give them the training and the tools, almost like Danielle talked about, for independent living, to be able to do things on their own, to train them about how to, how to think how to act around other people, how to exist in society and, and not just survive, but thrive. So if I think about that, I think about taking this money that is meant for training, if that's what he's setting the money aside for. Like the first question is, why are you setting the money aside at all? And I think that's a much bigger question. Because if I set that money aside for age 65, to your point, OG, do I disincentivize my kid 
because of the fact that I said, Hey, you're set up for life. Go do, go do whatever. Yeah. And of course, when you're 18 years old or 28 years old or 38 years old, the future of 30 years from now seems so far away. It's inconceivable. And the amount of money that that number turns into is also more money than exists in your entire mind's capability at that time. But we all know when you do inflation and that sort of stuff, it really isn't that much. You know, you go, well, $2 million is a lot of money. Sure is today. But in 60 years from now, it might not be that much. You know, it's the equivalent of $700,000 in today's dollars, which also is a lot of money. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of funky. I, I don't know what we're going to do about this. Obviously, my kids are going to go to school. We are saving money for it. But I also have a really high expectation that my kids are going to have some sort of scholarship-based skin in the game, so to speak. Their price of admission isn't necessarily to match dollar for dollar what I save, but my expectation is that they continue to do well in school, that both of them are doing presently, so that those other things are afforded them, whether it's a scholarship or a grant or you know some sort of easing of the burden, so to speak. And then I suspect that the other thing that we'll end up doing is having a pretty fair discussion with them about, you know, the different schools that they want to go to versus the ones they get to go to. Because where we live, there's plenty of schools that charge fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year to go to for college. And then there's other ones that charge fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. But but do you ever think about the fact that you've already presupposed that college is for them, even though your kids are as as young as they are. I mean, I kind of like this idea of backing up and going what's the best route? What if, what if college isn't the best route for, for your kid? I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, uh, Len's son. He's, he's talked about this himself who ended up going to a technical vocational program instead of mm-hmm. going to traditional college. Cause it ended up, that was right for his kid. Well, I agree with that. You know, they're going to find their own path. We have three of them, so I will not fully fund three colleges in terms of savings. So if one decides to, uh, not use it, then then that'll help the other ones. But, you know, I won't be wasting money, I should say, from a college standpoint. But I think, like you said, part of our job as parents is to also guide them a little bit. You know, if one of my kids decides that he wants to be a beach bum and says, Dad, that's way cooler than going to school. Yeah, I understand it's cooler. <laughs> but we're going to we're going to keep going to school for a little while. <laughs> we're not going to go live on the beach because people don't do that in real life. You know, now my brother, for example, is an auto mechanic and that's what he should be doing. He's really good with that stuff. It's, you know, I couldn't change it lug nuts if I had to. And my younger brother does it really well. So that's his thing, which is great. So there's nothing to say that college is the right place. I guess our job, like you said, is to kind of prepare people for real life. So, yeah, I, I think about that. So I don't know. My kids can be any doctor they want. (laughs) How do you? I will let them choose whatever position path they want to choose. That sounds like Paula talking about her parents, and you know, six, <laughs> that's right, yeah, successful entrepreneur, and they're very disappointed because she didn't. You can, you can have you can have any master's and PhD program <laughs> degree you want. I don't and, care which one it's in. Any, as long as it's an Ivy League school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think you're kind of coming down where I'm coming down. I mean, j- just from a philosophical standpoint, I don't know that I would want to do this. I don't know that I would want to put the money in a in a spot that uh, sets them. I I think about Warren Buffett and what giving uh, his kids what a hundred thousand dollars each was that was that the number for what as an inheritance? 
He's giving his money to charity and giving them, you know, versus the huge amount of money he has when he passes away, his kids aren't getting very much. You haven't read that whole thing? Yeah, he gave them like all a billion dollars for their foundations and stuff. He gave the kids billions of dollars for their foundations? Yeah. Yeah, but that's... There are like several hundred million dollars. I mean... But it's still charitable stuff. The amount of money that they get specifically to increase their lifestyle uh-huh. in the big scheme of things, him versus the amount of money he has, not not a ton of money. Yeah, I think he's giving away 95% of it. Yeah. Which said another way is 70 billion of the 75 billion. <laughs> so... Or something like that. I don't know. Somebody else knows that. I don't, I don't know. But no, if you want to think about like legacy planning for your kids, that's a whole different thing. You know, like we talk about from a financial planning standpoint, goal attainment. So you got to tell me, like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make it so that, hey, I want to make it so that when my kid turns 60, he's got enough to kick him over the edge. You know, where he's like going, oh, gosh, I got to work five more years. And then, boom, something shows up in his mailbox one day and it says, P.S., mom and dad left you enough money, you can retire today. You know, that doesn't affect their ability to continue to save throughout, you know, their lifetime and do the right stuff. Well, there's ways to do that. So you have to think about the kind of the end game here. What are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to give your kid $2 million at age 60? Are you trying to make it so he doesn't have to go to work ever again? Like those are all different, you know, different solutions. So I think that's, I mean, that's definitely how it starts with what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great question. Nice philosophical question. We need to dig into that one. Thanks for that question, Matt. Thanks, Danielle, for the question. If you've got a question for the show, head to stackybenjamins.com at the top of the page. You'll see questions for the show. Click that link, and uh, that'll show you all the ways that you can interface uh, with us. That's going to do it for today. If you're looking for better help in your corner, OG and his team are taking clients. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned? Sure thing, Joe. I'll tell them what we learned today. First, take some advice from our conversation with Patricia. Changing advisors? Figure out what you have and then what you'll need to sell first. Then determine where you're headed. After that, the conversation with your advisor and moving the money to a new home will be much easier. Don't lose money by running from an advisor. Make a good tactical move toward your goals. Second, thinking about exiting the market because of all the recent press saying the sky is going to fall again. Remember, you don't know what's going to happen next in the financial world and neither does the media. Start with your plan and you'll avoid chasing a runaway stock market. But the big lesson? Do not start off your Monday asking Joe's mom for the Sunday paper sizzler coupons. That woman takes all the good deals and she leaves me with coconut shrimp? Who wants coconut shrimp? You got to eat like 64 of them to even fill up. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I really thought doing these credits completely naked would have been a lot more fun than it actually was. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor.
still doing here? The show is over. Go home. You've been watching some movies on planes still, huh? I am running out of movies on planes. So, American, if you're listening, please upgrade your uh, movie list. I'm getting to, like, what was that movie about the dog, like, Alpha Dog or something like that? Oh, where yeah. It's like a caveman kid. Oh, God, I don't want I don't want to have to watch that. So, please, come up with something new. Well, this movie that you saw came out in 2016. I wasn't interested in it at all at the time. And then I remember it kept getting great, just rave reviews. So I'm curious to hear what you think. This is a trailer from the movie uh, Hell or High Water. All this was my ancestors' land. These folks took it. And now it's been taken from them. Except it ain't no army doing it. It's those sons of right there. I've been poor my whole life. It's like a disease. Passing from generation to generation. But not my boys. Not anymore. Good morning, folks! Open the doors! Y'all gonna steal my gun, too? We ain't stealing from you, we steal from the bank. Bank loan, just enough to keep your mama poor. Thought they could swipe her land. This looks like a man who can foreclose on the house. Says from the writers of Sicario. So another action packed movie. Is that, I saw Chris Pine. Is that Jeff Bridges? Yeah, Jeff Bridges. That trailer has nothing to do with the actual movie. Well, I mean, it kind of does. Well, here's what the, here's what the trailer, when they said it's, it's those SOBs, they're pointing at uh the bank and and they're saying it's the bank that's keeping the man down. So then it shows them robbing the bank. Yeah. It's kind of interesting the way that trailer goes, because you think the trailer goes, you're going, oh, this is a bank robbery movie. Yes. Off we go. I remember that from watching the trailers uh, when the movie came out. I'm like, I don't want to watch a bank robber movie from West Texas. Just doesn't, doesn't appeal to me. Yeah. So at first I thought it was set in the old times and it's present day. I mean, it's like 2000, call it like 2010, yeah. 2008 timeframe. Yeah. Jeff Bridges, Chris Pine. And correct, there is some bank robbery in there. Basically, the story is this. The bank's going to foreclose on Mama's house. The brothers, they don't want that to happen. So there's a whole bunch of other extraneous circumstances around that that I'm not going to give away today. But that's kind of the beginning, middle, and end of that. And so what they've decided to do is they're just going to steal from the bank that they feel has stolen from them. So they kind of go into this bank robbery thing. Jeff Bridges and his partner are uh, Texas Rangers. And since the robberies are such small time robberies, 
the FBI doesn't want anything to do with it. Plus, it's out in the middle of nowhere, West Texas. So the FBI is like, yeah, you guys handle it. This is the thing that I like most about this movie. The dialogue. I mean, just the writing of the words that all all of these characters, there's Chris Pine and his brother, I don't know his, you know the the character's name. Yeah. And then and then Jeff Bridges and his partner, pretty much the four main characters in this whole movie. There's other ancillary people in there. But the the writing and the dialogue between all four of these people is just really, really, really super awesome. It's it's funny, it's inappropriate, you know, it's old man versus young kid. It's all of those things all put together. And then the story of what's going on, it's one of those movies where you watch and you go, I kind of don't feel bad for the people that are doing this. Like I should, you shouldn't rob banks, but the bank kind of deserves it on this one. (laughs) You you know what I mean? Like you kind of feel that way a little bit. Anyway, there's more to the whole story than just that, but this was really, really, really good flick. You'd like this a lot because this is more than just a, this is not like heat 2.0. Yeah. Not in the least bit. There's there's bank robbery, but it's not about the bank robbery. Well, I'm about that's to, like a means to an end. I'm about to fly across the country. I think this will be number one on my list. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. God willing, you've got a plane that has it. Well, the cool thing on American, you know, if you have the American app on oh, your that's right. iPad, you can watch it on your app. Yeah, you yeah. can just watch it on the iPad. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. No, good. you'll like this. The dialogue is just fantastic in it. Good stuff. Hell or high water. Still sad I missed it. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.